Thank you. Uh, it, it's a joy for me to bring you God's word this morning. And we continue in our study of 1 Timothy, the first of three pastoral epistles. That's what we're going through right now. And these were written to Timothy and Titus in order. So if you're looking in your Bible, look for, if you, turn to Tim, if you, if you find Titus first, turn back a couple of books. But please open your Bibles now. And while you're doing that, let me introduce the chapter. Um, and also let me introduce myself. So by the way, I'm an elder at this church, and my name is Vinod. God uses pastors to guard our congregations. Like shepherds, who are pretty tough guys, a pastor's job is threefold. It is to guard, teach, and lead the flock, but more like Jesus, gently. So our pastor, who will be back teaching next week, Trevor, who you saw up on the stage just a few minutes ago, is pretty tough. He describes his approach as similar to a velvet-covered brick. And what that means, though, and what he means by that is he's loving and gentle on the outside, and he is. But he's got this solid spiritual core, and that's key, right? You need that. In Acts 20, well before Paul wrote to Timothy, Paul was so concerned that he summoned the elders from the church at Ephesus to Jerusalem to warn them to keep proclaiming the whole counsel of God. I've got to remember to open my Bible up as you guys are doing yours. Um, because after his departure, fierce wolves would come into the church to carry the flock away. None would be spared. That's a warning, and it's a pretty serious warning. But he had this specific thing to say. He said, men would arise from the congregation, speaking strange, twisted things to draw the disciples away after them. And this is the first time that he actually talks about apostasy and what that really means. So this chapter is somewhat pivotal to this whole book of Timothy. This was similar to what Paul had said to Timothy in chapter 1, if you think far back, six weeks ago. But in chapter 4, Paul identifies the apostasy facing the Ephesian church and tells Timothy that scripture, good teaching, and a devotion to Christ will return people to godliness. But notice that word, godliness. So let's start this morning reading at the end of 1 Timothy 3. There's a slide for it. It's a beautiful hymn we read last week that reminds us of the essentials of godliness. But please read aloud with me. That's why I've put it up on the screen here. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, uh, verse, uh, chapter 3 verses 14 through 16. And then as we fo and just follow along as I read through uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the spirit by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So here's what 1 Timothy chapter 4 has to say. Some will depart from faith, the faith. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word and God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith 
and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that you may see, all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Father God, we, we thank you for your word. Lord, it saves us. It teaches us. It is good for all of life. And I pray, Lord, this morning as you, as you speak through chapter 4, that we would hear, uh, that we would be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Little aside, I grew up in India. My mother taught English at the, at the school I grew up in. But being an English teacher, I got a little appreciation for the language. Right? We read a bunch of the classics. But this morning, with Paul's language, we're treated to his inspiration, how he writes by the Holy Spirit. But don't let that language distract you from the seriousness of this word. It is serious. So this chapter is divided into three parts. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 which speaks about apostasy. Verses 6 through 10 speak about seeking godliness. And then verses 11 through 16 about practicing godliness. Now, these, this is the outline for my sermon as well. But reading in verse 1 now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. But notice that Paul is not writing in his own authority. The Holy Spirit is speaking and delivering an important message given expressly or with em emphasis. So it was a common belief among the apostles at that time to use the word the faith. And what the faith meant, what the faith meant was um, just the idea, the beliefs, the core beliefs that Jesus taught them. That's what they held to. That those who have departed from the faith are apostates. They're people who believed outwardly in speech, but believe in alternate doctrines that render the essentials of the faith null. So essentially, these, these doctrines have kind of overtaken the faith. They've never really given their heart to the Lord, but they are in the church body, and they still have influence over it, which is what makes it dangerous. But to be clear, in verse 1, Paul is not saying that the people will lose their ability to believe permanently. No one is beyond redemption. You're looking at those words now, spirits and demons. What does that mean? Now, in the Old Testament, when lying spirits entered prophets, they then acted as if they represented God. And they spoke lies. But the false doctrine or teaching of demons who teach people a, a different system of beliefs are even worse than, than the, the spirits. They have influence on vulnerable believers. 
Second Corinthians tells us in chapter 11 that Satan and his angels disguise themselves as angels of light to preach religion. They call men to worship in various systems and idols, but behind the system and behind the idols are spirits and demons. Spirits whose lies are convincing enough that they can lead people away from the faith. We have to be careful with what we hear from some of our political figures today. There's a significant spiritual danger from people who are still in the congregation of believers. So that's outside, but inside the church, we've got people who are within the church who can speak these lies because they have departed the faith. Paul is not using some common language of the day to convince uh, uh, Timothy. Because in 1 Corinthians 11, here's what it says. It continues to say that the evidence of the first demonic deception was through the serpent or Satan in the Garden of Eden. So reading in Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, here's what we hear. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely die. For God knows when you eat it, eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And this is the tree of good and evil, not the tree of life, which God protected after that. Satan appeals to Adam and Eve's pride and their desire to be like God's. This was the first example of the work of demons. The first and the main lie. And that lie spawns a whole bunch of others. Since then, our desire to be like God causes us to assert ourselves and to do things our way spiritually. And this can cause others to be led astray. Unfortunately, given the times, we should expect to see more and more people led astray. And if that doesn't make you sad, I don't know what will. Um, you know, it is not the lies of the, and the deceptions that are outside the church, and there are many of those that we should be concerned about. Again, it is those lies that come into the church and capture the minds of believers that we need to identify and then address by speaking the truth. That's the antidote. Accurately, with courage, and directly in love. So brothers and sisters, I don't know if, if you've caught this, but we in our doxology, the service order every Sunday, but all the time, we're blessed. We're blessed to belong to a church that teaches the Bible faithfully, accurately, courageously even, but also with love. Paul in verse 2 tells us that people are led astray through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And what is he saying here? Well, there's a progression. Apostates are led away by their appetite for the, the spiritual lies of demons and deceiving spirits. Hearing these lies repeatedly causes the searing of their conscience, which then removes their ability to discern spiritual truth. Finally, they become insincere or hypocrites because they know that the truth, they know the truth, but still speak and believe lies. Chapter 4 of Ephesians says it like this. Make sure that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. To illustrate what a seared conscience might look like, last year, my wife's dad, uh, Elaine's dad, was burned badly in a fire. And these burns were so severe that they burned through the first layer, the, the couple of layers of sin, and actually cauterized his skin and, and uh, cauterized his, his nerves. So he literally, when he had surgery, couldn't feel any pain, even through his recovery. But he's, he's healed now. I mean, he's, he's healing. He's on, on his way to recovery. And, and uh, the doctors were really surprised about this. I think it was a miracle. I think it was through prayer that this happened. 
But seared consciences prevent us from feeling. I'd imagine, though, that Paul here, if you think about who Paul is, he's speaking from experience. When he persecuted believers, it was as if his conscience was seared. He sincerely believed that he was following Christ when he did these things. And it took Jesus of Christ appearing to him on the road to Damascus to heal him, to heal his conscience. But it's only through God's miraculous work that a seared conscience may be healed. That's important if you think about it. Because once you've been led away, it's hard to come back. You've got to wait for a miracle. For a believer, in contrast, a healthy, well-functioning conscience is our moral center. It is informed by scriptures. It pains us when we sin, reminds us when we forget, allows us to discern and separate lies from the truth. It is guided to truth by God and tested through the scriptures. So reading verse 3 again, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from the foods that, God's crea that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. The Ephesian apostates are influential in the church. They have their specific doctrines about marriage and about food, which appear unremarkable. But such people believe that they can devise their own truth. And that's what they're essentially doing. Their own path to holiness by giving up things, thinking that this would please God. They make up a stricter sense of self set of self-devised rules and commandments, rules that were more than what God ever gave us in the, in the word. It's like they say that we don't need you, God. We know how to be holy on our own. But in, in effect, they say, and this is the end result, God, you owe me for these things I do to please you. It is exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden in their desire to be like God. Desiring our own glory over God's glory, we want statues built after ourselves. And I change there because this can affect any one of us in the congregation. We are all susceptible to these lies. But as I read this, I was reminded of my own sin. Twice a year at Lent, I try to give up something. Lent and Advent. And the thought has crossed my mind at those times that this practice, by doing this, I can please or displease God. But in reading and studying, I've been convicted by Scripture about those thoughts. Fasting is a good thing. I don't mean to say that, that, that doing that is bad, but it's the thoughts that come along with it that make it different. I cannot make my, myself holy or justified in God's eyes. And that's, you know, a million-dollar word is as Trevor likes to say, but we studied or we talked about justification in the, in the catechism this morning. Couldn't think of a more perfect time to talk about it. Brothers and sisters, this manner of trying to be self-justified, as Paul describes, is not the gospel, period. It's not the gospel of the apostles. It is only Christ's finished work on the cross that establishes our redemption, our salvation, presenting us to God holy and righteous. There are always going to be people in the church who are a little more legalistic, some who even devise their own rules and justification trying to be holy. And in the Ephesian church, what we're hearing about is that they try to seek God's favor through abstinence from marriage and food as their basis for asceticism, legalism, and justification. But generally speaking, today's culture is not like that. Right? We don't like rules. You see it on TV all the time. I think we've gone so far the other way. But in, in certain sects, in certain, in certain types of churches, clergy continue to seek celibacy, similar to the Essenes' practice almost 2,000 years ago. By forgiving or giving up marriage, they look for external signs of their own holiness. But equally, equally, this is also true 
that today's culture and some parts of the church now seek to establish their own virtue, their own rules, their own holiness. And in this case, by honoring marriages that are non-biblical. The truth of scripture in Genesis sees marriage this way. After God had created, created Adam and Eve in Genesis 2.24, it says this, Therefore a man, or male, shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, or woman, and they shall become one flesh. This is marriage God ordained. There is no virtue, no further credit from God, no holiness when we attempt to redefine God's intentional design and precepts from marriage. None. There is no credit, no virtue, when we choose to quietly approve of non-biblical marriages, traditions, or practices because we think that's the right thing to do. We cannot change God's commandments, laws, or ordinances based on simply our own rules of acceptance. We can't do that. We cannot will our own holiness to become like God's. By receiving God's word and acting on it as truth, we claim both. Sorry, by not receiving God's word and acting on it as truth, we claim both our glory over God's glory and our control over holiness. That's a big mistake. So reading on in verse 4, here's what it says. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So Paul tells us God's intent and design and creation was good, and that's the sanctification by the word. So if you look through the Bible, you're going to find several verses, but I went back to Genesis, and in chapter 1 and verse 29, here's what it says. Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And then again in 9.3, so if you're catching that, that's the plants, that's vegetables. Every moving thing... That, God, that lives shall be food for you. And, I, and, and, I, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So this is for animals. All of our food is provided by God. Right? It's sanctified by God because it's created by him. There were temporary, temporary laws and restrictions given to the Israelites. Right? But those were temporary. When Jesus came, he abolished all of these laws. And to be clear, there's no blanket holiness for everything that we consume. We can't consume unhealthy substances and assume that this behavior is covered by scripture. Now, there are many here this morning who have food allergies, and I don't mean to tell you that you've got to ignore what your doctor's telling you, but scripture here tells us that there's no spiritual reason, no spiritual reason, right, to, to avoid food created by God for us. Now, Paul ends verse 5 with thanksgiving, holiness, and prayer to consecrate that which is made by God. So what is he saying here? Well, he's saying, you've been given a lot. God has blessed you. Give thanks for it. Now, if this is not something that we do after every meal, it might be, it, you might want to consider it a practice. Not dogmatically, not telling everybody to close their eyes when you pray, which is what I've done sometimes, right? So I'm guilty of it. But pray. Why? Well, if you look at our country, we are the most blessed of any civilization in history, given the food that we, the quality of food that we get. We are blessed. Regardless of your financial status, the stuff that you get to put on your table, the stuff that you get to look at when you go into stores or buy, there's nothing like it anywhere else. But in summary here of that first section, apostasy and the work of demons and deceiving spirits is made possible through our actions. We all desire and seek holiness, but it's when we want control over that holiness, when we think we, divide, we define it, it's when we start to believe a false gospel. But we need to pray. That's what 1 Timothy 2 said. We need to pray for discernment specifically and courage to separate the lies from the truth 
to understand the word so that we can accurately, gently, but truthfully call out lies that enter our body. By body, I mean the church. But if you're following the outline, here's the second point. Seeking godliness. And this is what verses 6 through 10 tell us. So Paul presents three things as antidotes to apostasy in the church. Right? Three things. Central to them is the idea of seeking godliness. So verse 6 says, if you point out these things to our brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and the good teachings that you have followed. Paul tells Timothy he will be a good minister or pastor if he points to these things, which is to call out the apostates' lies directly while emphasizing and teaching the truth. So that's the first of three directives that, that Timothy's been given and he's been encouraged to do. The second one is teaching the good doctrine that he's been immersed in all his life, from discipling his grandmother, by, by his grandmother, to his mother, and to Paul. So he's got a lot of discipling under him, under his belt. And then in the third verse, I'm sorry, in the seventh verse and the eighth verse, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise both for the present life and the life to come. In verse 6, Paul's accolade, being a good, a good minister or a servant, is an interesting one. Right? When you think about it, it's kind of a strange turn of phrase to put right in there. But it's the highest honor any one of us can, can want. Last, last week, you know, we, we listen to Austin a fair amount when he's preaching. And sometimes I think, well, yeah, you know, I'm not sure I'm really serving God when I'm standing out there. But here's what he says. That is an accolade. That's the highest accolade that we, that we can want. To, to be a good servant to God. But he's got a caveat, though. He's got a caveat. And that caveat is only if you teach the good doctrine. You've been given a lot, use it. But there's a reason why. And this is the other caveat. That food, that spiritual food, nourishes us and nourishes the pastor so that they can feed the flock or people's souls with spiritual food. Now, there's a little change in tone in this verse 6 onwards. And it's neat to see Paul being so direct with Timothy. They know each other well. He's walked with him for a long time. He taught him, he mentored him, he discipled him one-on-one. -on -one. Now, some of the best spiritual teaching that we can get occurs like that, one-on-one. -on -one. And many of us in the congregation, in this congregation, feel a need for it. The coming alongside of somebody who's further along in the faith, the discipling that it brings, this is a picture of the Great Commission. One of our church's goals this year and next is discipling for this very reason. We've also got evangelism on the list. Our souls need to be fed. Keeping the focus of the church on the scriptures and on good doctrine is a first priority. And to do this well, pastors and we should not be distracted, which is why verse 7 says, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' fables. Rather, train yourself to be godly. And in that verse 7, what he's talking about it was what was going on in the church at the time. And there are some of, there's some of this kind of in the water as well, not socially, which sometimes comes into the church, but we've got to be cognizant of it and, and look for it. But we need to avoid these myths completely. Now, the third thing that Paul tells Timothy is really the main point of this passage, and that is to train ourselves to be godly. And what this means is to pursue godliness, pursue it, chase after it hard, chase after God, Put some energy into it. So what does being godly mean? Right? What is godliness? Well, simply, godliness is to be like God. It's not complicated. But here's a definition from Baker's Dictionary of Theology. 
I love this. It says, godliness is the reverent awareness of God's sovereignty over every aspect of our lives and the attendant determination to honor him in all one's conduct. Godliness and holiness denote one reality. Now, isn't that great? That's a great quote. I didn't have it up on the screen. Sorry. But God takes, the, takes on the responsibility for our holiness when we give him that control. But we need to turn, that, turn our lives over to him completely for that to happen. But by worshiping God, our conduct changes to a manner that honors God. And that's a rough kind of summary of what that definition just said. I mean, this is the opposite of what the apostates do, right? In attempting to control their own holiness, we need to submit instead. But how wonderful would it be if we were determined to train or to pursue godliness all of the time? All of the time. That's the focus of verse 8. And I'm going to read it again. Train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness is value for all things, holding promise for both the present time, present life, and the life to come. So the Greeks and the Romans of the time were obsessed with, the, with exercise. And there's a reason for it. You know, all of the games that came out of there, the Olympics that we celebrate today, caused that. But we, we have a similar obsession with health. We have a similar obsession with exercise. God gives, uh, Paul gives us this analogy, and the Holy Spirit does, between the rigor of serious training and spiritual training, not because training makes us more pleasing to God, notice, right, verse 5, it doesn't make us more pleasing to God, nor because we should exercise, not exercise, but applying this discipline that we learn, and there's some athletes in the crowd here, they know what I'm talking about better than I do, I'm not an athlete, but because applying the same discipline can use, that we use in our workout routines, can help us. So it's an issue of priority and order. First, submit to God and do so by training and hearing and studying the word, which then feeds your very soul. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life. What is he saying? Well, that godliness has value in every way. Actually, what is that saying there? So if you look at that verse, it says, this saying is trustworthy. I didn't read the full verse, but... And, and also for the life to come, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So what saying? Well, this, that godliness is value in every, in, in every way. And both now, because it draws us nearer to God in our lives, but for the future as well. For our hope, our hope is not just an eternal life. It is to be and live in the presence of God, our living God in eternity. That is our hope. So when we talk about eternal life, it is not to live forever. It's not to be sad when we die, but rather to be in the presence of God. And that's what the Garden of Eden, that's the image that you should have of the Garden of Eden, or we should have. This life is preparation for the next in God's presence. That's a, that's a simple way to say that. But here's another way to think about this. There is no pleasure that we pursue in this world, none, that lasts. The pleasures are for this moment, they have little to no benefit for eternity. They're quickly forgotten. None of these things actually nourish our soul. They don't satisfy the soul like pursuing God. This is what we should strive for. Verse 10, this is why we labor and strive, because we put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, and especially of those who believe. Our Christian walk is not easy. That is the labor that we refer to. We should expect this. But when we strive to follow Jesus and have our eyes on the Lord, it makes life joyful, even when things are tough. We believe that, that Christ's salvation is available to all, 
But if we truly live like this, and that's the last part of that verse, if we truly live like this, our lives would be inspired, hopeful, training ourselves in the word. But why? So that we can share it, share our joy with others in discipling and evangelism. So if you're here this morning and you have questions about what it looks like to follow Jesus and to give your life to him, please come forward after the service and pray with us or talk to, to one of the people who've been up here on the stage. And Jens was at the back there. You've seen Trevor. You've seen the worship leaders here. Now, this would be a great end of the chapter. But Paul has five more verses, 11 through 16, which, which could be like a little training manual. And that training manual is how to practice godliness. So command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you've been given. By prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you, practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul has five instructions for Timothy to practice godliness. But really, he's talking to a pastor, right? It's Pastor Timothy. Pastor Timothy. Um, pastor Trevor. Um, but... When these are pastorally directed at Timothy, they apply to each and every one of us. So here are the five. Verse 1, command by the word of the Holy Spirit and the authority of the Scripture to tell the people to seek holiness. Verse 12, be courageous. Let no one despise you, so don't be intimidated by other believers or older people who may despise, that is dislike, not hate, dislike, your youth. Instead, be an example to them. And, and that is... Wow, that would be fantastic, right, if our youth was an, were an example to others in the church. Verse 14, do not neglect your gifts which were, which were bestowed, God bestowed and confirmed by the elders of council. So verse 13 and 15, devote yourself to public reading of Scripture, to the public reading of Scripture. Read the word out loud in public and practice these things. Now, there's a little note there which says the consensus is that the apostates had actually interrupted that practice. And if you think of what was happening in... in 2,000 years ago, they didn't have the written word available to them. So they actually had to take snippets of the Gospels, snippets of this letter, and read them out to the church. If, if that's disrupted, the very feeding and the nourishing that Paul, that Paul was talking about to Timothy earlier gets disrupted. Verse 16, keep a close watch, watch on your faith. Pastors can easily expend so much energy. And we've seen this, not in our church, but outside of it on the spiritual lives of others, that they neglect their own faith so they get carried away. Now, there's a little note in verse 15 that says this, do not hide your spiritual life so all can see you. You can be encouraged by the work of your pastor, and we are. Command and teach these things. Timothy was the pastor to the church at Ephesus. I've said that already, but when he commands people to do these things, is it in his strength? I recently saw a little interview by John MacArthur, online. And here's what he says. He says he has no authority over his congregation. I think most evangelical pastors, and I had a conversation with Trevor about this, would agree with that statement. But it's not because God hasn't given them, pastors here, the authority to preach and lead. That's not what it's saying. It's because they preach under the authority of Scripture. They preach under the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul understands this, and he's exhorting Timothy to practice it. You know, when you sit and you hear scripture, it has a way of making you sit up and listen. When it's taught with the authority of the Holy Spirit, it is salvific, 
for those whose hearts are open. So scripture can save you. In verse 12, Paul exhorts Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, except the believers, an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. I wanted to kind of go through each one of those, but I think they're fairly obvious. The only one that I would say, I would put some emphasis on, particularly with our youth, is purity. We don't talk about it in our culture as much. Those are the hidden sins to some degree. I was encouraged by a young cousin of mine who's a pastor now, years ago, when he got a purity ring from his dad. And one of the things that he keeps citing is that's the one thing that keeps him anchored. Now, Timothy was probably young here, right? He was in his 20s or 30s. But in the, socially, in the culture, what it's talking to when it says youth is people under 40. So Paul is speaking, in a sense, to all of the young people in this church, but I got a lot out of reading this. John Piper, a well-known pastor and theologian, said this about a decade ago. God is go doing some unusual things in our day among young people. And we want to harness all the good impulses of grace and be a part of this awakening. So I thought about this a fair amount. And when I look around the church today, I know most of the young people here. I've either spent time with them in Sunday school or I know them personally. And I recognize them. And those who are in their 20s and 30s as well. Many of you are impressive in your devotion to God and in your spiritual maturity. So we have a generation right here in this body that have been discipled by their parents and their pastors and their leaders who care for them, who teach them, and who preach to them. Those who have grown up in the church are extremely blessed to have your parents' faith. Okay. But when you're in the thick of things trying to figure things out, it's easy to compromise. So to the youth... Pay attention to your faith. We're going to come back to that in a minute. The effort that you put in now to pursuing Jesus will last for eternity. So as we are athletes and we're young, it's easy to spend our time a certain way. Right? Don't choose that. That is not enduring. Spend your time instead on pursuing God now, now when you're young. In talking to Timothy, Paul recognizes his gifting and maturity, but it's not unusual for us as an older generation, my generation, and older to look down on youth, usually because of their attitudes. Right? And there's a few here that I want to call out, and not in the negative, because, because of what Paul says next. Disrespect, rebellion, being self-absorbed, and that's natural for a teenager, but as you get older, not a good thing. Right? You're not aware of what's going on around you. Sticking to each other, that is, not experiencing the fullness of the communion that you have with the saints. And then conforming to peer pressure. Now, that's a big one. With social, with social media, we've got a lot of stuff that enters the church through our kids. And parents, I know, worry about this. That is one of our prayers for all of our kids, but also for the church. Now, here's what Paul says next. You who are, and, and those of you who are under 40, take heed, be, but be encouraged. Don't be intimidated even if the older generation looks down on you. In spite of that, persevere, but let your devotion to God or godliness be what you're known for. The work that Timothy is doing is not just defensive to keep apostates away. It is salvific. That, again, is from the word. Now, teaching the word, being a good example, and guarding the flock saves souls. It inoculates against the negative effects of the culture. So I can't help but think in verse 15 and 16, if you look at it, um, so read it on your own. Paul sees Timothy is not doing what he's called to. 
And we can get to that place as well. Paul's two admonitions tell him to use his gifts, gifts and to watch his faith. When we hide our talents or our gifts in the ground for a long while, we forget them. We don't even know they're there. And second is the admonition about apostasy. It applies to all of those in the church, including the pastor. Here's what he says in verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. And that is, be scriptural. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Salvation, bringing people to Christ, is what motivates Paul, Timothy, and it should motivate us as Christians. So Paul says this again for the third or fourth time. Make, your te make sure that your teaching is based on the truth. And over the course of the last few weeks, we've heard that several times. It must be important, right? Scripture and good doctrine is a primary anecdote, antidote to Paul's doctrine. It has a dual benefit here. It is salvific because it saves us and it defends the truth from apostasy, but it also saves both the hearer and the people who are preaching. John Calvin commented on 1 Timothy 16, and he takes a different tact here, but God alone saves. So this is not to say that the pastor actually saves people. God alone saves, and no part of his glory can be transferred to man. But God's glory is not all, at all diminished when he employs man's efforts to bestow salvation. That's a long way of saying God can use man to save people, and that's okay. We don't have to stress out about it. Now, we've been reading through Ezekiel as a family, and one, one verse really stood out to me. Um, Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 8. And I'm paraphrasing here. It's a warning, and it's a warning to Ezekiel. If he does not speak out to dissuade the wicked from his ways, the wicked man will die for his sins. That is, if Ezekiel doesn't speak out. But God will hold Ezekiel accountable for his death or his blood. So an ending. May we always preach and teach the gospel faithfully and truthfully. And may we always be aware of those things that capture our hearts and lead us away. Um, you know, uh, Paul's focus on Timothy and the great effect that the older can have on the younger got me thinking. So, kind of a strange time for me to get emotional, but um, I got the opportunity to sit down with uh, my wife and I, with, wow. So let me read this. So I've had the privilege of spending time with two couples who are ahead of us in the faith. So my intent was not to get advice from them about how they, but my intent actually was to get advice from them. It's, it's to kind of sit down, like, like Paul was telling Timothy, as a disciple, to sit under the feet of people who are ahead of us in the faith. So that's Mary Ellen and Chuck, and Bob and Linda. And so I've got a little video to show you here, and I've got, I had an hour worth of footage, actually two hours worth of footage that I had to cut through. So forgive me if I haven't done this justice, but that two hours, um, you know, what I promised is I could, I could send those videos over to you, and if you want to watch them in their entirety, either with the congregation, with other people in the church, I think it's, it's super. And the goal was to actually take Timothy, this chapter 4, and look through it and look for questions that I could ask them or we could ask them. Elaine and I sat down with them. So here's the result. If you can play that video, that would be fantastic. Sure. Um, as you know, I'm Chuck Wood. I'm a local guy. I grew up around this area. I've been married to my lovely wife, Mary Ellen, for 50 years. She's the love of my life and my greatest supporter. Um, 
not to sound contrite, but she, she makes my life complete along with the relationship with Christ, building our relationship between the two of us on Christ. And I think that's been the key for us anyway, of uh, putting God first in everything. And uh, everything kind of flows from that. And dentistry was something that I'd always wanted to be. I was one of these unusual young boys that I literally cannot remember wanting to be anything but a dentist. And uh, thank God I was able to, to achieve that and have been in practice for uh, 47 years. And God has uh, blessed me with a, a skill that I've fortunately been able to utilize for his glory and to try to listen to his call uh, for my life. And I don't want this to sound kind of goofy, but you know, I'm a child of God and I, I take great pride in knowing the Lord and, and having him define who I am and what I'm all about. But it's important for me not to just hoard that talent just from my own well-being. And as a consequence, God's called me to do missionary work, which I had never really realized that would be something that I would be involved in as a, as a young, young man. But once the hard part for, for me, and I think for a lot of Christians, is we tend to, to be that closet Christian that nobody knows that, that we're Christians. And I think our society has suffered, and we as individuals have suffered, not really being bold about, you know, what defines me? Who are you? I'm a, I'm a disciple of Jesus. And um, it also causes me to be responsible for how I behave, you know, with my fellow man. If someone knows, hey, Chuck's a Christian, what is he doing now? You know, I got to walk the walk and talk the talk. So that for me has uh, made a huge huge difference on how I look at what gift, this talent that God has given me and how do I utilize that to bring honor to the to the God that I love and the one that I worship. Um, when we started dating, what I really liked about him was his faith in the Lord. I mean, he loved Jesus and he talked about it in his faith. And I had been raised Catholic, but I always knew there was something more. I didn't know how to get that and I met Chuck and I fell in love with his faith and I said I want that for my life he couldn't have gone on those missions if I hadn't helped organize he couldn't have done anything he's done if I wasn't there to make sure that he was prepared if he didn't have time to do that and also be successful you know, he was going, he was on all the emergency groups at night. He was going out in the middle of the night and, and doing, working six days a week. And if I'd had a job, mm. we would have gone in different ways because my goal was our marriage, our child, and of course our faith. I guess that would be my only advice as an old person to say to somebody new, is don't make your career your main focus. That's fantastic advice. Because you will turn around and realize what you've lost. Yeah. I don't think a lot of times you know that they're your gifts. They're just what's outlined for you and what you have to do every day. Um, but when I look back on it, I can see my gift in music. I can see my gift in in accounting and business administration because I did a lot of that for my parents you know I mean just I've, I do a lot of different things yet I don't have a single career and um, 
I guess those are my gifts, you know. So. When we were dating, um, Chuck had a guitar but didn't really know how to play the guitar, and I did, so I taught him how to play some songs. And we used to sing out, sit outside, and, and he'd play the guitar and we'd sing together. Well, as far as what brought me to faith, I was raised in a Christian home. Uh, I remember my mother gathering the four of us children together and getting us on a streetcar and taking us to church, Sunday school and church, while my dad played baseball in those days on Sunday morning. Later he started getting into church and I came to faith at about nine years old, um, but it was not a deep faith. It was a pretty surface level faith. So I, I could not exactly tell you when I really came to be a man who trusted the Lord with all my heart. Anyway, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, which says, trust in the Lord with all your heart do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. But I found that to be true. And the older I got, the more I learned to lean on the Lord and really trust him with all my heart. Mm. Um, uh, so many times he actually gave me a very specific word one time in a voice that I heard only in my head, but not in my ears in other words. But he said, I have always guided your steps, my son. Very clearly, those words. A long situation, too long to describe how it got to that, but um, he told me that very personally and very clearly. And he has. He's always guided my steps as I saw him. Um, but I think my walk with the Lord started when I was around 10. And my father had a niece, an adult niece, who came to visit us. And she realized that as a child, I was not attending church. And she took it upon herself. She was a believer. She took it upon herself to call the pastor of a nearby church in the Palms area of Los Angeles um, to find out if someone could pick me up for the services. And this pastor uh, who had a heart of gold said he would be very happy to pick me up for every service. So when I was about 10, I started attending this small church that was like a small family. Of course, walking with the Lord doesn't mean that life is perfect, doesn't mean that every day is joyful, but it does mean you'll never feel alone. I've always felt his love in my life since that moment. I think one of the wisest things the Lord taught me was that trust doesn't just happen. Uh, Bob had a medical episode uh, a few months ago and, and I was overwhelmed uh, with fear and apprehension because I didn't know what was gonna happen in the future. And I can remember waiting on the Lord, having no strength in myself. And like Bob said, hearing the Lord speak to me in an almost audible voice saying, one day at a time, I will never leave you. Young people, 
very often aren't raised to trust those around them, uh, their friends, their families. And without that kind of knowledge, how do you trust the Lord? Um, and I think I would say to a young person, don't give up. Open your heart and your mind and give some time to the Lord to speak to you or close a door and open another one and your trust will come to pass and you will know that he will never forsake you or leave you and you're never alone.